Book Twenty One, Chapters One through Six of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Twenty One, Chapter One. I propose, with such ability as God may grant me, to discuss in this book more thoroughly the nature of the punishment which shall be assigned to the devil and all his retainers, when the two cities, the one of God, the other of the devil, shall have reached their proper ends through Jesus Christ our Lord, the judge of quick and dead. And I have adopted this order, and preferred to speak, first of the punishment of the devils, and afterwards of the blessedness of the saints, because the body partakes of either destiny, and it seems to be more incredible that bodies endure in everlasting torments, than that they continue to exist without any pain in everlasting felicity. Consequently, when I shall have demonstrated that that punishment ought not to be incredible, this will materially aid me in proving that which is much more credible, that is, the immortality of the bodies of the saints, which are delivered from all pain. Neither is this order out of harmony with the divine writings, in which sometimes indeed the blessedness of the good is placed first, as in the words, They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment, but sometimes also last, as, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things which offend, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of his father. And that these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And though we have not room to cite instances, any one who examines the prophets will find that they adopt now the one arrangement, and now the other. My own reason for following the latter order I have given. CHAPTER Two. What, then, can I adduce to convince those who refuse to believe that human bodies, animated and living, can not only survive death, but also last in the torments of everlasting fires? They will not allow us to refer this simply to the power of the Almighty, but demand that we persuade them by some example. If, then, we reply to them that there are animals which certainly are corruptible, because they are mortal, and which yet live in the midst of flames, and likewise that in springs of water so hot that no one can put his hand in it with impunity, a species of worm is found, which not only lives there, but cannot live elsewhere, they either refuse to believe these facts unless we can show them, or, if we are in circumstances to prove them by ocular demonstration, or by adequate testimony, they contend with the same scepticism that these facts are not examples of what we seek to prove inasmuch as these animals do not live for ever and besides they live in that blaze of heat without pain the element of fire being congenial to their nature and causing it to thrive and not to suffer just as if it were not more incredible that it should thrive than that it should suffer in such circumstances it is strange that anything should suffer in fire and yet live, but stranger that it should live in fire and not suffer. If then the latter be believed, why not also the former? Chapter 3 
But, say they, there is no body which can suffer, and cannot also die. How do we know this? For who can say with certainty that the devils do not suffer in their bodies, when they own that they are grievously tormented? And if it is replied that there is no earthly body, that is to say, no solid and perceptible body, or, in one word, no flesh, which can suffer and cannot die, is not this to tell us only what men have gathered from experience and their bodily senses? For they indeed have no acquaintance with any flesh but that which is mortal, and this is their whole argument, that what they have had no experience of they judge quite impossible. For we cannot call it reasoning to make pain a presumption of death, while in fact it is rather a sign of life." For though it be a question whether that which suffers can continue to live for ever, yet it is certain that everything which suffers pain does live, and that pain can exist only in a living subject. It is necessary, therefore, that he who is pained be living, not necessary that pain kill him, for every pain does not kill even those mortal bodies of ours which are destined to die, and that any pain kills them is caused by the circumstance that the soul is so connected with the body that it succumbs to great pain and withdraws. For the structure of our members and vital parts is so infirm that it cannot bear up against that violence which causes great or extreme agony but in the life to come this connection of soul and body is of such a kind that as it is dissolved by no lapse of time so neither is it burst asunder by any pain and so although it be true that in this world there is no flesh which can suffer pain and yet cannot die yet in the world to come there shall be flesh such as now there is not as there will also be death such as now there is not for death will not be abolished, but will be eternal, since the soul will neither be able to enjoy God and live, nor to die and escape the pains of the body. The first death drives the soul from the body against her will, the second death holds the soul in the body against her will. The two have this in common, that the soul suffers against her will what her own body inflicts. Our opponents, too, make much of this, that in this world there is no flesh which can suffer pain and cannot die, while they make nothing of the fact that there is something which is greater than the body. For the spirit whose presence animates and rules the body can both suffer pain and cannot die. Here, then, is something which, though it can feel pain, is immortal. And this capacity which we now see in the spirit of all shall be hereafter in the bodies of the damned. Moreover, if we attend to the matter a little more closely, we see that what is called bodily pain is rather to be referred to the soul. For it is the soul, not the body, which is pained, even when the pain originates with the body, the soul feeling pain at the point where the body is hurt. As, then, we speak of bodies feeling and living, though the feeling and life of the body are from the soul, so also we speak of bodies being pained, though no pain can be suffered by the body apart from the soul. The soul, then, is pained with the body in that part where something occurs to hurt it, and it is pained alone, though it be in the body when some invisible cause distresses it, while the body is safe and sound. Even when not associated with the body, it is pained, for certainly that rich man was suffering in hell when he cried, I am tormented in this flame. 
But as for the body, it suffers no pain when it is soulless, and even when adamate, it can suffer only by the soul's suffering. If, therefore, we might draw a just presumption from the existence of pain to that of death, and conclude that where pain can be felt, death can occur, death would rather be the property of the soul, for to it pain more peculiarly belongs. But seeing that that which suffers most cannot die, what ground is there for supposing that those bodies, because destined to suffer, are therefore destined to die? The Platonists indeed maintained that these earthly bodies and dying members give rise to the fears, desires, griefs, and joys of the soul. Hence, says Virgil, that is, from these earthly bodies and dying members, hence wild desires and groveling fears and human laughter, human tears. But in the fourteenth book of this work we have proved that according to the Platonists' own theory, souls, even when purged from all pollution of the body, are yet possessed by a monstrous desire to return again into their bodies. But where desire can exist, certainly pain also can exist, for desire frustrated, either by missing what it aims at or losing what it had attained, is turned into pain. And therefore, if the soul, which is either the only or the chief sufferer, has yet a kind of immortality of its own, it is inconsequent to say that because the bodies of the damned shall suffer pain, therefore they shall die. In fine, if the body causes the soul to suffer, why can the body not cause death as well as suffering, unless because it does not follow that what causes pain causes death as well? And why, then, is it incredible that these fires can cause pain but not death to those bodies we speak of, just as the bodies themselves cause pain, but not, therefore, death to the souls? Pain is, therefore, no necessary presumption of death. CHAPTER four. If, therefore, the salamander lives in fire, as naturalists have recorded, and if certain famous mountains of Sicily have been continually on fire from the remotest antiquity until now, and yet remain entire, these are sufficiently convincing examples that everything which burns is not consumed. As the soul, too, is a proof that not everything which can suffer pain can also die, why, then, do they yet demand that we produce real examples to prove that it is not incredible that the bodies of men condemned to everlasting punishment may retain their soul in the fire, may burn without being consumed, and may suffer without perishing? For suitable properties will be communicated to the substance of the flesh by him who has endowed the things we see with so marvellous and diverse properties that their very multitude prevents our wonder. For who but God the Creator of all things has given to the flesh of the peacock its antiseptic property? This property, when I first heard of it, seemed to me incredible. But it happened at Carthage that a bird of this kind was cooked and served up to me, and, taking a suitable slice of flesh from its breast, I ordered it to be kept, and when it had been kept as many days as make any other flesh stinking, it was produced and set before me, and emitted no offensive smell. And after it had been laid by for thirty days and more, it was still in the same state, and a year after the same still, except that it was a little more shriveled and drier. Who gave the chaff such power to freeze that it preserves snow buried under it, and such power to warm that it ripens green fruit?
but who can explain the strange properties of fire itself, which blackens everything it burns, though itself bright, and which, though of the most beautiful colours, discolours almost all it touches and feeds upon, and turns blazing fuel into grimy cinders? Still, this is not laid down as an absolutely uniform law, for, on the contrary, stones baked in glowing fire themselves also glow, and though the fire be rather of a red hue, and they white, yet white is congruous with light, and black with darkness. Thus, though the fire burns the wood in calcining the stones, these contrary effects do not result from the contrariety of the materials. For though wood and stone differ, they are not contraries like black and white, the one of which colours is produced in the stones, while the other is produced in the wood by the same action of fire, which imparts its own brightness to the former, while it begrimes the latter, and which could have no effect on the one were it not fed by the other. Then what wonderful properties do we find in charcoal, which is so brittle that a light tap breaks it, and a slight pressure pulverizes it, and yet is so strong that no moisture rots it, nor any time causes it to decay? So enduring is it that it is customary in laying down landmarks to put charcoal underneath them, so that if, after the longest interval, any one raises an action and pleads that there is no boundary stone, he may be convicted by the charcoal below. What, then, has enabled it to last so long without rotting, though buried in the damp earth in which its original wood rots, except this same fire which consumes all things?' Again, let us consider the wonders of lime, for besides growing white in fire, which makes other things black, and of which I have already said enough, it has also a mysterious property of conceiving fire within it. Itself cold to the touch, it yet has a hidden store of fire, which is not at once apparent to our senses, but which experience teaches us, lies as it were slumbering within it, even while unseen." and it is for this reason called quick lime as if the fire were the invisible soul of quickening the visible substance or body but the marvellous thing is that this fire is kindled when it is extinguished for to disengage the hidden fire the lime is moistened or drenched with water and then though it be cold before it becomes hot by that very application which cools what is hot as if the fire were departing from the lime and breathing its last, it no longer lies hid, but appears, and then the lime lying in the coldness of death cannot be requickened, and what we before called quick we now call slaked. What can be stranger than this? Yet there is a greater marvel still. For if you treat the lime not with water but with oil, which is as fuel to fire, no amount of oil will heat it. Now if this marvel had been told us of some Indian mineral which we had no opportunity of experimenting upon, we should either have forthwith pronounced it a falsehood, or certainly should have been greatly astonished. But things that daily present themselves to our own observation we despise, not because they are really less marvellous, but because they are common, so that even some products of India itself, remote as it is from ourselves, cease to excite our admiration as soon as we can admire them at our leisure. The diamond is a stone possessed by many among ourselves, especially by jewellers and lapidaries, and the stone is so hard that it can be wrought neither by iron nor fire, nor, they say, by anything at all except goat's blood. 
but do you suppose it is as much admired by those who own it and are familiar with its properties as by those to whom it is shown for the first time persons who have not seen it perhaps do not believe what is said of it or if they do they wonder as at a thing beyond their experience and if they happen to see it still they marvel because they are unused to it but gradually familiar experience of it dulls their admiration we know that the lodestone has a wonderful power of attracting iron when i first saw it i was thunderstruck for i saw an iron ring attracted and suspended by the stone and then as if it had communicated its own property to the iron it attracted and had made it a substance like itself this ring was put near another and lifted it up and as the first ring clung to the magnet so did the second ring to the first a third and a fourth were similarly added so that there hung from the stone a kind of chain of rings with their hoops connected not interlinking but attached together by their outer surface who would not be amazed at this virtue of the stone subsisting as it does not only in itself but transmitted through so many suspended rings and binding them together by invisible links yet far more astonishing is what i heard about this stone from my brother in the episcopate severus bishop of milevus he told me that bathanarius once count of africa when the bishop was dining with him produced a magnet and held it under a silver plate on which he placed a bit of iron then as he moved his hand with the magnet underneath the plate the iron upon the plate moved about accordingly the intervening silver was not affected at all but precisely as the magnet was moved backwards and forwards below it no matter how quickly so was the iron attracted above i have related what i myself have witnessed i have related what i was told by one whom i trust as i trust my own eyes let me further say what i have read about this magnet when a diamond is laid near it it does not lift iron or if it has already lifted it as soon as the diamond approaches it drops it these stones come from india but if we cease to admire them because they are now familiar how much less must they admire them who procure them very easily and send them to us perhaps they are held as cheap as we hold lime which because it is common we think nothing of though it has the strange property of burning when water which is wont to quench fire is poured on it and of remaining cool when mixed with oil which ordinarily feeds fire chapter five nevertheless when we declare the miracles which god has wrought or will yet work and which we cannot bring under the very eyes of men sceptics keep demanding that we shall explain these marvels to reason and because we cannot do so inasmuch as they are above human comprehension they suppose we are speaking falsely these persons themselves therefore ought to account for all these marvels which we either can or do see and if they perceive that this is impossible for man to do they should acknowledge that it cannot be concluded that a thing has not been or shall not be because it cannot be reconciled to reason since there are things now in existence of which the same is true i will not then detail the multitude of marvels which are related in books and which refer not to things that happened once and passed away but that are permanent in certain places where if any one has the desire and opportunity he may ascertain their truth but a few only i recount the following are some of the marvels men tell us 
The salt of Agrigentum in Sicily, when thrown into the fire, becomes fluid as if it were in water, but in the water it crackles as if it were in the fire. The Garamante have a fountain so cold by day that no one can drink it, so hot by night no one can touch it. In Epirus, too, there is a fountain which, like all others, quenches lighted torches, but unlike all others, lights quench torches. There is a stone found in Arcadia, and called asbestos, because once lit it cannot be put out. The wood of a certain kind of Egyptian fig-tree sinks in water, and does not float like other wood, and, stranger still, when it has been sunk to the bottom for some time, it rises again to the surface, though nature requires that when soaked in water it should be heavier than ever. Then there are the apples of Sodom, which grow indeed to an appearance of ripeness, but when you touch them with hand or tooth, the peel cracks, and they crumble into dust and ashes. The Persian stone Pyrates burns the hand when it is tightly held in it, and so gets its name from fire. In Persia, too, there is found another stone called Selenite, because its interior brilliancy waxes and wanes with the moon. Then in Cappadocia the mares are impregnated by the wind, and their foals live only three years. Tilan, an Indian island, has this advantage over all other lands, that no tree which grows in it ever loses its foliage. These and numberless other marvels recorded in the history, not of past events, but of permanent localities, I have no time to enlarge upon and diverge from my main object. But let those sceptics who refuse to credit the divine writings give me, if they can, a rational account of them. For their only ground of unbelief in the scriptures is that they contain incredible things just such as I have been recounting. For, say they, reason cannot admit that flesh burn and remain unconsumed, suffer without dying. Mighty reasoners indeed, who are competent to give the reason of all the marvels that exist. Let them then give us the reason of the few things we have cited, and which, if they did not know they existed, and were only assured by us they would at some future time occur, they would believe still less than that which they now refuse to credit on our word. For which of them would believe us, if, instead of saying that the living bodies of men hereafter will be such as to endure everlasting pain and fire without ever dying, we were to say that in the world to come there will be salt which becomes liquid in fire as if it were in water, and crackles in water as if it were in fire, or that there will be a fountain whose water in the chill air of night is so hot that it cannot be touched, while in the heat of day it is so cold that it cannot be drunk, or that there will be a stone which by its own heat burns the hand when tightly held, or a stone which cannot be extinguished if it has been lit in any part, or any of those wonders I have cited, while omitting numberless others. If we were to say that these things would be found in the world to come, and our sceptics were to reply, If you wish us to believe these things, satisfy our reason about each of them, we should confess that we could not, because the frail comprehension of man cannot master these and such like wonders of God's working, 
and that yet our reason was thoroughly convinced that the Almighty does nothing without reason, though the frail mind of man cannot explain the reason, and that while we are in many instances uncertain what he intends, yet that it is always most certain that nothing which he intends is impossible to him, and that when he declares his mind we believe him whom we cannot believe to be either powerless or false. Nevertheless, these cavillers at faith and exactors of reason, how do they dispose of those things of which a reason cannot be given, and which yet exist, though an apparent contrariety to the nature of things? If we had announced that these things were to be, these sceptics would have demanded from us the reason of them, as they do in the case of those things which we are announcing as destined to be and consequently, as these present marvels are not non-existent, though human reason and discourse are lost in such works of God, so those things we speak of are not impossible because inexplicable, for in this particular they are in the same predicament as the marvels of earth. CHAPTER six. At this point they will perhaps reply, these things have no existence, we don't believe one of them, they are travellers' tales and fictitious romances. And they may add what has the appearance of argument, and say, If you believe such things as these, believe what is recorded in the same books, that there was or is a temple of Venus, in which a candelabrum set in the open air holds a lamp, which burns so strongly that no storm or rain extinguishes it, and which is therefore called, like the stone mentioned above, the asbestos or inextinguishable lamp. They may say this with the intention of putting us into a dilemma, for if we say this is incredible, then we shall impugn the truth of the other recorded marvels. If, on the other hand, we admit that this is credible, we shall avouch the pagan deities. But, as I have already said in the eighteenth book of this work, we do not hold it necessary to believe all that profane history contains, since, as Varro says, even historians themselves disagree on so many points that one would think they intended and were at pains to do so. But we believe, if we are disposed, those things which are not contradicted by these books, which we do not hesitate to say we are bound to believe." But as to those permanent miracles of nature, whereby we wish to persuade the sceptical of the miracles of the world to come, those are quite sufficient for our purpose, which we ourselves can observe, or of which it is not difficult to find trustworthy witnesses. Moreover, that temple of Venus, with its inextinguishable lamp, so far from hemming us into a corner, opens an advantageous field to our argument. For to this inextinguishable lamp we add a host of marvels wrought by men, or by magic, that is, by men under the influence of devils, or by the devils directly, for such marvels we cannot deny without impugning the truth of the sacred scriptures we believe. That lamp, therefore, was either by some mechanical and human device fitted with asbestos, or it was arranged by magical art in order that the worshippers might be astonished, or some devil under the name of Venus so signally manifested himself that this prodigy both began and became permanent. Now devils are attracted to dwell in certain temples by means of the creatures, God's creatures, not theirs, who present to them what suits their various tastes. They are attracted not by food like animals, but like spirits by such symbols as suit their taste, various kinds of stones, woods, plants, animals, songs, rites. 
and that men may provide these attractions the devils first of all cunningly seduce them either by imbuing their hearts with a sacred poison or by revealing themselves under a friendly guise and thus make a few of them their disciples who become the instructors of the multitude for unless they first instructed men it were impossible to know what each of them desires what they shrink from by what name they should be invoked or constrained to be present hence the origin of magic and magicians but above all they possess the hearts of men and are chiefly proud of this possession when they transform themselves into angels of light very many things that occur, therefore, are their doing, and these deeds of theirs we ought all the more carefully to shun, as we acknowledge them to be very surprising. And yet these very deeds forward my present arguments, for if such marvels are wrought by unclean devils, how much mightier are the holy angels, and what cannot that God do who made the angels themselves capable of working miracles? if then very many effects can be contrived by human art of so surprising a kind that the uninitiated think them divine as when for example in a certain temple two magnets have been adjusted one in the roof another in the floor so that an iron image is suspended in mid-air between them one would suppose by the power of the divinity were he ignorant of the magnets above and beneath or as in the case of that lamp of venus which we already mentioned as being a skilful adaptation of asbestos if again by the help of magicians whom scripture calls sorcerers and enchanters the devils could gain such power that the noble poet virgil should consider himself justified in describing a very powerful magician in these lines her charms can cure what souls she please, rob other hearts of healthful ease, turn rivers backward to their source, and make the stars forget their course, and call up ghosts from night, the ground shall bellow neath your feet, the mountain ash shall quit its seat, and travel down the height. If this be so, how much more able is God to do those things which to skeptics are incredible, but to his power easy, since it is he who has given to stones and all other things their virtue, and to men their skill to use them in wonderful ways, he who has given to the angels a nature more mighty than that of all that lives on earth, he whose power surpasses all marvels, and whose wisdom in working, ordaining, and permitting, is no less marvellous in its governance of all things than in its creation of all. End of Book Twenty One, Chapters One through Six. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.